Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have a very important interview with Senator Black and Harley Schlinger. We're going to be talking about the potential of World War III and nuclear war and what you can do to help fight this and to keep it from forming. We are in a, a really urgent situation where the war keeps escalating. There's a lot more going on than the American people are being led to believe. They are not getting the full information. You're not getting any real information coming out of that region and what's really going on. I think it's very important that people know the truth and that you can share it with others in your communities and that you talk to your representatives in Congress and in the Senate and that we do something about it. Number one, we want to push them to negotiate for peace. We want a peaceful area in the Ukraine, Donbass region that Putin is asking for so we can alleviate the war, stop the fighting immediately. And then we want to negotiate, even more importantly, we want to negotiate for a new economic system that respects the sovereignty of all nations and that we work together to negotiate that so that we have a say in what the future is going to be. And it will not be the billionaires, the trillionaires in this world making a decision for all of us, but all of us in this world come together, negotiate through our representatives on what's the best for a worldwide solution. So this is a really important interview that I'm doing today. I hope you share this video far and wide. And thank you for supporting my show, Independent Media, by supporting my affiliates. You can go to sarahwestall.com and sign up for my newsletter. So let's get into this really important interview with Senator and Colonel Black and Harley Schlinger of the Schiller Institute. Hi, Senator Black and Harley Schlinger. Welcome to the program again. Hello, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. It's good to be here. Well, it's my honor to have you, you here. And I know that your extensive background, before you were a senator in Virginia, you have extensive background in the military, including being a high-ranking member in the Pentagon, which I want you to talk about. And I, I, you have been vocal on what's going on in Ukraine, in Syria in particular, where I've had you on my show for that. And the background of that, I think, leads into a lot of what's going on in Ukraine. But Right now, there is an escalation of war that's becoming very dangerous to the world. And I, I'm glad Harley is here because Harley really wanted, um, with his role at the Schiller Institute and their role trying to bring unite the world towards peace, he really wanted me to talk to you because the American people are not getting the message of what's really going on. Could you first talk about your background and because I, I want people the context of, of why you are an authority figure in this manner. Well, thank you, Sarah. That, at first, I'll, I'll just add to your comment. The, there has been almost a, a total censorship of the truth coming out to the American people about what's going on in Ukraine. And uh, so this is very important. But first, I, I want to make it clear that I love my country. Uh, there are few of the generals, few congressmen who have ever risked their lives uh, for America, and I've done so hundreds of times, not in low-intensity situations, but in very fierce, brutal struggles. Just run down my background a little bit. Uh, now, I'm speaking as, as a private citizen today, uh, not as a member of DOD, and everything that I'm talking about comes from 
uh, unclassified open source intelligence. Uh, so I volunteered to fight in Vietnam as a Marine Lieutenant. Uh, I was a helicopter pilot. Uh, I flew in Vietnam. My aircraft was hit by enemy ground fire on four different missions. I crash landed once after machine gun fire uh, cut our flight controls. On another time, our engine was hit by armor-piercing rounds as we flew in to recover the bodies of uh, two Australian B-57 pilots who'd been shot down a few minutes earlier. Our wingmen had to turn back with, uh, with electrical fire, and we decided we'd get in, get in come hell or high water. And uh, we actually, uh, going in, the, the uh, bamboo trees smashed the, the tips off of all four rotor blades as we went in, uh, but we did recover the bodies. And after I flew 269 combat missions, I was flying off the carrier Iwo Jima when they asked for a volunteer to fight in the jungles with the 1st Marine Division. Uh, I did that, I, I volunteered, and uh, I made 70 combat patrols with several Marine infantry companies. Most of my patrols were at night, deep in enemy territory. My forward air control team took 100% casualties in one month. And on my final patrol, I was wounded. Two of my radio men died fighting beside me. Now, after law school, I joined the Army Judge Advocate General's Corps, served in West Germany during the Cold War as part of the NATO forces. And by the time I retired, I was a colonel with 32 years of service. And uh, I, was, I retired after serving as chief of the criminal law division at the Pentagon, uh, preparing documents for the president's signature and uh, advising uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee and uh, uh, things of that sort. So, so I, come, I come at this and, and I mention all of this simply to make the point, I wanna make it crystal clear that I'm faithful to my nation willing to die if there's a, a need, uh, but um, I'm a longtime student of military and foreign affairs and uh, quite familiar with what's going on over there. Uh, but that said, I am dead set against any U.S. involvement in Ukraine. I think we are embarked on the single most reckless venture in our nation's history. Uh, our actions uh, present a, a clear and present danger of igniting a nuclear holocaust. Uh, we're literally at five minutes to midnight with the world's two nuclear superpowers toe-to-toe -to -toe in an undeclared combat situation, and it is insanely dangerous, and it threatens the lives of everyone in this country today. Well, with your background, I think it's important people to realize there's so few people that would be willing to die for this country. And you being one of them, I think it shows your allegiance to where your heart's at. I think what people don't realize is what was happening in Ukraine before Russia decided to um, do their military operation. There was a buildup in Ukraine by NATO forces that virtually no one in the United States understands or knows about the people. I, I assume there's people in the military that does or the Pentagon. 
Could you talk to that? And it, it, it seems that we were working hard to bait a war, which I don't frankly understand. So could you please help us understand the situation before today? Yeah, if, if you go back to 1991, <clears throat> to everyone's amazement, the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union simply dissolved. Uh, I had been prepared to, to die fighting against the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union dissolved, it went away. And uh, all of the countries of Eastern Europe, including Russia, were freed to take their own path. Um, Russia was desperate to westernize. They wanted freedom of speech. They wanted freedom of religion. As you know, the Soviet constitution was an atheist constitution. Today's uh, Russian constitution is a very strongly Christian constitution. Um, so we, we had this unique opportunity. The, the Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet counterpart of NATO, just simply dissolved and went away. Doesn't exist, it's gone. And uh, this was a historic opportunity for the United States to have said, okay, let's bring Russia into the European community. But uh, instead, we decided that we would maintain NATO. And the only way that you could maintain NATO is to maintain this, this myth that there was an enemy and Russia was chosen to be the enemy. And for that reason, we never really came to grips with the dramatic revolutionary changes that occurred within Russia when it no longer was part of the Soviet Union. Um, we had a buffer of a thousand miles between the German border and the, uh, the Russian border. This was a thousand miles. It, it, was, it was such a safety factor because the US, UK, France, all nuclear powers, Russia, a very great nuclear power. You needed that buffer in case something was awry. There was, there was time to coordinate, time to diffuse situations. But instead what happened there was an enormous, powerful bureaucracy in NATO. People made their livelihoods on NATO. And so they converted uh, Russia into the new boogeyman. And they began this inexorable march towards the east with the goal of reaching the Russian border. And uh, they, over, over the decades following, they essentially achieved this and they were to the point where the Ukraine, which is a, a large country itself, um, that was sort of the, the next step. In 2014, now moving up into recent times, in 2014, um, uh, Ukraine had, uh, had gotten offers of assistance from the EU and from Russia. Uh, various financial aid packages that they desperately needed. Um, president uh, Yanukovych looked at this. He was the duly elected president of Ukraine. 
he decided that the Russian package was the more realistic, the more immediate help for Ukraine, and he chose to take that one. As soon as he made that decision, the Central Intelligence Agency and British MI6 went to work. They instigated an uprising within Kiev, Kiev was called Kiev at the time, the capital of Ukraine. Uh, and with the help of CIA and MI6, it turned into a revolution, shooting, murdering uh, various officials, police officers. And um, we managed, the US and the UK managed to overthrow the government and uh, stage a violent revolutionary coup. At that point, there, there are many Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, about a quarter of the people. They tend to be concentrated on the east, near the Russian border. Um, in two of these areas, what we call the Donbass, which is uh, an area on the east uh, of Ukraine, and it, it is adjacent to the Russian border, um, within that pocket of Russian-speaking people, they, they and also the Crimeans, who are virtually all Russian, they said, look, we don't recognize this revolutionary government. We didn't elect it. We didn't have any part to play in selecting who they were. And now, all of a sudden, you have these revolutionary thugs who are telling us that we're taking orders. And so both the Donbass and the Crimea broke away. And uh, very quickly, uh, Crimea was reabsorbed into Russia. It had been Russian for 500 years. And, uh, and then the Donbass declared its independence, the Donetsk Republic and the Luhansk Republic, uh, both together make up the Donbass. What happened next is, NATO, under the urging of the United States, began pouring weapons into the Ukraine. They began sending troops, putting boots on the ground, NATO boots on the ground, to train the Ukrainian revolutionary coup and their, their military, training them with, with Western weapons to kill Russians. And... Um, so then you, all, of, all the time this is going on, Russia is desperately trying to work with NATO, with the United States, to defuse the situation, because they can see that, that war is, is becoming closer and closer. Um, now, getting very recent, go back to December of 2021, just last, last year, just a few months ago, Russia made one last desperate attempt to achieve peace. <clears throat> they went so far as to lay out a detailed peace proposal that they submitted to NATO and they said, look, let's, this is our position. Let's talk, let's negotiate this. Let's establish a peace for Eastern Europe so that, you know, Russia, Europe can can get over this and work together. Um, 
NATO was very dismissive. And when I say NATO, it's important to remember that essentially NATO is an, is an agency of the United States. Uh, they they don't really function with with tremendous independence, and to to some extent, you could almost look at the EU as kind of a vassal state of of the United States. Uh, it had been this way, you know. Germany functions in some ways. I hate to say it as a vassal state because I love Germany. I love the people there, um, but. The U.S. calls the shots, and the U.S. said, forget about this peace proposal. Now, as this is going on, as Russia is desperately trying to achieve peace, meanwhile, uh, President Zelensky has been installed by the U.S., by, by the CIA, by NATO, and he orders a huge army to assemble to attack the Donbass. A quarter of a million Ukrainian troops, their, their best, their most experienced, their most professional, they surround the Donbass, quarter of a million. And they're armed with the latest Western weapons, with Stinger missiles, with all sorts of anti-air anti and anti-tank missiles. And at this point, uh, Russia, under President Putin, they know they're not prepared for a war. They're not prepared to attack. But they realize that at any moment, the Ukrainians are about to attack the Donbass. They've already fired about 2,000 artillery missions into the Donbass. This is from Ukraine into the Donbass. And now nowhere is this mentioned in the US media. President Putin, wait, he, he has delayed as long as he can. He realizes the attack is imminent. He attacks with 190,000 men. Now this is important. There is a rule of thumb that throughout the military for hundreds of years, everybody knows when you are attacking, you would like to have a ratio of three attackers for every one defender. That's one of the most common military rules of thumb, three to one. Putin is in the posture where he is forced to attack with less than one to one. So this is not some huge pre-planned plot on the part of Russia. This is essentially a last minute recognition. We've got to do something. This is our last chance to break, break up this assault on the Donbass. At that point, Russia crosses the border. It sends troops into Kiev, which ties them down. And at the same time, it begins to fight in the Donbass. The last thing in the world that Russia wanted to do was to fight this war. They did not want it, but NATO was hell-bent on it. They knew without question that if they continued pushing forward, if they attacked in the Donbass, Russia would be forced to fight. They knew Russia was going to fight, and they compelled them to fight. So this really is not 
it's not a, a war of Russia's choice. It seems that they were baited to go in. So we had that thousand feet or thousand mile treaty. They blew that out of the water and then they built up troops right by the Russian border. And I have been told, and I think maybe Harley or somebody in the Schiller Institute compared it to the Cuban Missile Crisis where we had nuclear weapons in Cuba and how Kennedy felt at the time when the Russian uh, nuclear weapons were in Cuba and how the Russians feel now with NATO or U.S. nuclear weapons possibly being right at their border in the Donbass region. And that's what they're fighting, from my understanding. Is that an accurate way to look at it? Yes. Let me just correct one thing. Now, we didn't have a, we didn't have a thousand mile treaty but we did have a buffer that existed with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So we had an opportunity. If we had said to Russia, if we had said, let's do a treaty and let's just say this is going to be a demilitarized area, they would have snapped that up so fast. They'd have been running. They'd have been waving American flags in Moscow. I, I mean, seriously, seriously. Harvey, am I correct? They would oh, literally yeah. be... Yeah waving American flags. Um, so so the, thousand, the thousand miles was what existed and we, we let that opportunity go. <clears throat> when you talk about Cuba, I, I'm very familiar because I, I was a teenage boy uh, at the time of the, uh, the 62 missile crisis with Cuba. And I happened to be out hunting snakes. I was, I was early in the morning. I was on US 27 through the Everglades, not a car in sight. I'm out there enjoying the morning and the, the beauty of the glades. And all of a sudden, up on the road is the most gargantuan military convoy I have ever seen. And I've been in, I've been in the military 32 years. I, there would, I've never seen anything to compare. John F. Kennedy, the president, sent an enormous military force south into South Florida in preparation for the invasion of Cuba. Uh, uh, the Soviet Union had gotten Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro wanted nuclear missiles. And, uh, and the Soviet Union said, OK, well, uh, the US has been surrounding us with missiles. We're going to surround them. Um, so we detected them, and uh, President Kennedy and the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff made this decision that there is no way that we could afford to have nuclear missiles right on our borders. Now, it was 90 miles away, but it was still very close to our border. And for that reason, we were prepared with divisions of troops to go in and invade. We established a military, a, a naval blockade which is an act of war, by the way. And uh, the Soviet Union, to their credit, recognized that there was no way that we could accept nuclear missiles on our borders. And they agreed to a compromise where we, they would pull those missiles out of Cuba and exchange the United States would pull our missiles out of Turkey, where they were rather close to the Soviet borders. Uh, 
Now, this is really the exact mirror reflection of what we're seeing today, where Russia could, they had no choice, just as John F. Kennedy had no choice. He had to, to take military action to remove those missiles from Cuba. I supported him. I still support what he did. Not, not all the way he did it, but I support the fact that he did. Russia had absolutely no choice. If, if they allowed the Ukraine to continue on its course, it was going to be brought into NATO and they would put nuclear tip missiles on the ground in Ukraine. And then at any moment, if the Ukraine wanted to spark World War III, they could simply stage some sort of a little border incident and then uh, call on Article 5 of the NATO Treaty and say, we've been attacked, and now all of NATO is suddenly triggered into a war with Russia. Um, so yes, they were. Russia was baited into this. Uh, we knew they had to attack. It wasn't as though this was some unexpected event. We knew it, it had to be done from the Russian perspective. And I want to- if, uh, if I could just add something. Yes, go ahead. If I could just add something to that. Uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was one of several Russian people who's uh, government officials who described it as a reverse Cuban missile crisis and made precisely the point that Colonel Black was just making. Now, I just wanted to add one aspect to the uh, reasons for this, because it's not simply a military decision made by the U.S. government and by both parties over a number of years, because this goes back, as Colonel Black said, to 1990. And it was Bush, it was uh, uh, Clinton, it was Bush Jr., it was Obama, all of them continued this. One of the fears they have in the last, going back to 2014, was the recognition that the financial system in the West was very weak. And the fear that a Russia-China alliance could begin a process of moving away from a collapsing dollar system. And on February 4th, which was 20 days before Putin launched the special military operation, Putin and Xi Jinping met in Beijing and signed a whole series of economic agreements. And we're seeing now the moves in this direction of a gold-backed ruble, of exchanges going on. For example, the Saudis are now accepting Chinese yuan for oil. The Indians are accepting, uh, are working a ruble-rupee agreement. And we're seeing the inflation in the West, the, the economic collapse coming partly from the sanctions. And so there is a, a movement toward a potential new system. And the desire, and you heard it from Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, when he was speaking in uh, Rammstein Air Base, he said, we have to degrade the Russian economy. We have to make Russia weak. And the fear is that a growing strong Russia in an alliance with China, not that they, they don't want to break the dollar system, they're, they're part of the dollar system. But again, they're, they're feeling forced in this direction. And when you add the sanctions, it adds an added element of why the Russians felt compelled to defend their position 
when they were demanding new security guarantees, which the West would not even consider. Well, before we get into uh, the economic factors, I want to talk about, because I have more that I want to bring up with that, but I wanted to talk about the nuclear war threats that we're getting from both sides. And we have people in our military that are saying we we should use tactical nuclear weapons. And I maybe you can talk about the difference between tactical versus other types. And then we also had Putin come out and say that he wanted to use a nuclear weapon against a few major cities in Europe as well. Can you talk about how serious this escalation is and what this means? Is it just posturing or is it real? Well, um, in the case of, of Russia, Russia has reminded us that they are a nuclear power. I, I, there's, there's nothing they have done to suggest that they intend to use nuclear power, but they, in one case, they, uh, they, uh, they had a Russian submarine that, uh, that surfaced off the coast of the United States uh, just without any detection. Nobody knew it was there, but it, it actually stayed on the surface just so that it would be spotted and that it was just a reminder, okay, we are nuclear power and um, and they have they've put their nuclear forces on high alert also. Um, so they've done it as a as a preemptive measure. The United States, our position has been different. Ours has been an aggressive move. Uh, we've had two two Republican uh, senators, uh, Roger Weicker, uh, U.S. Senators, U.S. Senator Roger Weicker and uh, Senator Inhofe. Um, Weicker made the comment that uh, we shouldn't take off the off the table the idea of sending in U.S. military forces on the ground in Ukraine as combatants, and uh, that we need to keep open. Uh, the option of first use strike by military forces. Now, uh, I, I can't remember when there's ever been a, a threat made of first use of nuclear strike. We're talking about staging a nuclear Pearl Harbor against Russia. And uh, so those are those are two on the Republican side, but probably the bigger drive has been on the Democratic side. Uh, and this is, this is a nonpartisan thing. I mean, both parties are terrible on this. But uh, Nancy Pelosi has just gone to Kiev uh, to, uh, it used to be called Kiev, it's now called Kiev, it's very confusing. Uh, but she went there to meet with Zelensky and she basically pledged almost that we're we're in this war with you to the end um uh and uh she's she's talking about you know we're, we're there for you until victory and uh she had been preceded by the secretary of defense and the secretary of state who both pledged american uh, fealty to the ukraine um we're almost in a situation where 
there's sort of we're sort of sleepwalking into a declaration of World War III without the involvement of Congress, the U.S. people, or even the President of the United States. Uh, it is not clear if we go into war who will have been the person who decided it, because there, you know, we have we have General Breedlove now. Breedlove is interesting. He was the former Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, a four-star uh, Air Force general who was in charge of all U.S. troops in Europe. And he recently made comments suggesting that it would be advisable for the United States to put military forces on the ground in Ukraine and to drive all the way to the Dnieper River. Uh, which which divides about a third off of of Ukraine's territory, but but they would drive through the first two thirds of Ukraine. And we're talking about armored divisions, tanks, uh, artillery, infantry, people moving forward, and uh, uh, and and of course, if we did that, it would trigger a no-fly zone, which means we would. We would send our jets in to uh, shoot down Russian planes, and uh, that would almost, with certainty, uh, commence World War III. And I think there's general consensus among people left and right, uh, pro pro war, anti war, that if you have World War III, it is likely that it will develop into a thermonuclear war. So we actually, now Breedlove, by the way, General Breedlove, although he's retired, he is one of the closest confidants of the Biden administration. There is no way that he would have made his statements without the approval of the Biden White House. So we're talking about, you know, the American people have never been consulted. They don't even realize what what uh, Breedlove has suggested, uh, it's not talked about on the TV stations, which is where most people get their news. And uh, and yet we are perilously close. I mean, we're, we're just like with our fingernails hanging onto the cliff of peace, and we're about to fall into the chasm of war and thermonuclear war. One thing that I, I've seen you talk before about what was going on in Syria and also about Ukraine, and when you say that Pelosi says that we're here to the end, we'll fight with you, one thing that you mentioned in the past is that we will expect or we will want Ukraine to fight to the very last person and that we aren't interested in necessarily you know, the benefit of Ukraine as much as using them as a proxy in this war, and if they lose every single soldier, then that is just the the consequence of the situation. Is that really what Nancy Pelosi was saying? And what? How do we view proxies? I mean, is this just another proxy war? You know, when we came out of Vietnam, we had sixty thousand people killed. It was a very very bloody war. Um, I, I myself have dragged dozens of bodies off the battlefield. Um, we we recognize that that was 
perhaps not the best, not the most efficient way to fight wars. <clears throat> the Soviet Union had had moved into Afghanistan, and uh, rather than put American troops on the ground, we raised up a terrorist army. Uh, we brought in Saudi Arabian clerics to establish madrasas, which were a large system of religious schools. And uh, they, they brought in street urchins, orphans, people like that, and they trained them in nothing but how to kill people and studying the seventh century version of the Quran. Uh, it was this Wahhabism, a certain sect of, of Islam that was extraordinarily violent and uh, and hate-filled, and uh, and the idea was to 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 train these young people to so hate any Christian that they would go out and slaughter them, and they did with the with the Russians. They Russia. It was a very bloody war for Russia. In the end, the Central Intelligence Agency was fielding a terrorist army of 300,000 members, largest terrorist army in modern history. Um, when it was over, they sent a message from Afghanistan to CIA and back. It was some cryptic comment to the extent, we did it. And, uh, and I think at that point, they began to recognize that <clears throat> it is much better to have proxies fight than to get the American people to agree to fight these wars. So we have done that repeatedly. We did it throughout much of the, the Middle East, um, although we've also put troops on the ground. Um, we are using the Ukrainians for the time being as proxies, but I think they're I think there is now a movement, and, and this goes back to what uh, what Harley was saying. Um, we potentially face a an economic cataclysm in the United States. We have printed such vast quantities of unbacked currency that inflation is inevitable. We're seeing it now. But what we're seeing, we're just seeing our toe dipped into the water. Uh, we're about to, you know, to go into the pool, and we're going to see inflation that will make make us long for the days of Jimmy Carter. And I think, to some extent, there's an element within within the Democratic Party, since they're in power today, that would say that. Here's a chance to wag the dog. Um, they did it successfully when they attacked Serbia. Uh, when when the U.S. attacked Serbia on the eve of the Bill Clinton uh, uh, impeachment trial in the Senate, uh, where we attacked Syria to their or Serbia, we attacked Serbia to their utter amazement because they had been longtime allies of the U.S. and Suddenly, we had jets dropping bombs from the sky. So I think there is an element within the Democratic Party that says we are faced with the, the worst election imaginable in November. Uh, perhaps there's a chance if we can distract the American people by 
talk of war and mobilization and all of the, the hysteria and excitement that goes with war, maybe we can divert their attention. So, the, but, you know, we have this long running move towards, towards the border of Russia. And I always talk about the boys from Davos. Uh, we, we have these, these oligarchs from all around the world. There are a couple of thousand of them. They meet once or twice a year in, uh, in Davos, Switzerland. And they basically plot out the future of the world. What are we going to do? Where are we going to have wars? Where are we going to have, uh, where are we going to have peace? How will we change the, the uh, energy system of the world? Uh, so it's not necessarily Americans who make all the decisions, um, but it certainly is not the American people. And the American people desperately need to get back into the game and have a voice. Well, they first need to be educated on what's going on. So I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, you were talking that from a military perspective, the United States pretty much has a, is the leader in that. But let's switch to banking and economic, where I think that is coming from the city of London. And I, when I, I wrote an article and I published and I did some research and I realized, and it wasn't just me, I, I got information from others, obviously, that over the last hundred years, every single time that we've had a major war or a major crisis, there has been a monetary uh, reset or a monetary switch of something you know, going off the, the British pound to the US dollar. And, uh, things have changed in each time, World War I and World War II. And we are in the midst of a switch to different monetary system as the dollar has it really lost its value with the printing and just the, it's a fiat currency that only has a certain number of years. So it seems that this is another banker's war and that there's more going on here. Could you talk more about that, Harley? And do they want to get into a war? It seems like, the, like you were saying, that uh, the Davos crowd planned these. And what would a war, how would a war benefit them? It's, it gives them more ability to grab the power after everything falls, or what? Well, I think this is where you have to look at the people, the Davos crowd, which includes people like uh, Prince Charles in England, bankers such as Mark Carney, the, the former head of the Bank of England, the European Union leadership, who are not really uh, from parties that represent people, but they represent bankers. Uh, similar to what we have in the U.S. Congress. Now, the problem they have is a financial system that's collapsing. So from Davos and Klaus Schwab, they came up with this idea of the Great Reset. Now, what is the Great Reset? It's that you have bankers who determine the policy for every nation, that nations are not allowed to make sovereign decisions on how to invest money. And this was done for many, many years to the poorer countries, the former colonial countries, through the International Monetary Fund. They were told they had to shut down plans for infrastructure, for education, for uh, transportation, uh, and spend money to pay the debt. And so now what's happening is that the Europeans and the Americans are being told the same thing. You can't invest in the physical economy. What's the excuse? global warming, that if we have infrastructure, if we have 
um, modern technologies that will heat the planet and we'll all die. Now, the science on this is quite fraudulent because I just was reading an article that there's global warming going on on Jupiter right now, which doesn't have a single automobile or factory. This has to do with other aspects, solar radiation, the, the solar system where it is in the rest of the cosmos. But they're using this to impose a top-down global government in which no nation is entitled to be a sovereign nation. And the argument they have is that the central banks today determine credit and currency policy, but you have legislatures that, de that determine spending or fiscal policy. They want to take that power away from legislatures because they say parliaments, Congress are too close to constituents and don't recognize the needs of the bankers and the financial institutions. So that's what the Great Reset is. Now, here's the point. In the United States and Europe, most of the population not knowing this seems to be willing to go along with it. There's a lot, there is opposition, a lot of opposition, but not open. But the Russians and the Chinese, and now we see also the Indians, the Egyptians, the Brazilians, the Argentines, the South Africans, they're not willing to give up sovereignty. And they're asserting their rights to play a role in determining what the policy should be. And so this is where war comes in. For example, Iraq and Libya, both of them had ideas, uh, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, of gold-backed currencies and moving toward backing those currencies also by oil. And they were easy to crush militarily. It's a lot harder to crush Russia and China. But the attempt of, of going after Russia is to say to every country in the world, look, we'll do whatever it takes to make this new order with no sovereign nation states a reality. And so I, I would argue that, and that's what the, the Schiller Institute has been saying, that's a major impetus behind the desire to break Putin and carry out a regime change in Russia the same way they did in, in Libya, in uh, Iraq, and in Ukraine. Remember, in Syria, they tried to do a regime change, and Putin came in and stopped it at great expense to the Syrian people, not from Putin, but from the U.S. support of the terrorists. So what we're seeing now is a realignment starting to come into being. The smart thing for the United States would be to stop fighting Russia and China, recognize our economic problems, and see where we could work together to establish a financial system which is with currencies based on something real as opposed to bailing out bankrupt entities. Well, in the absence of anyone who's willing to negotiate, it seems that they want war. And it's very clear, their actions show that they want war. Is there a benefit in their minds? It's really hard to get into their minds, but from a rational, it's irrational most of the time, but is there any rational benefit for them wanting to use nuclear war to gain power for their reset? Do they, could they possibly think that? Maybe even in an irrational way. Well, the, <clears throat> there's no way that, that nuclear war is rational, but <clears throat> you have to remember that 
there is no central guiding intellect to American foreign policy. Now there is with with within Russia, there is within China, but the United States uh, foreign policy is sort of like an amorphous blob where people make payoffs and bribes and threats. And uh, you have you have international groups that come. One, one of the biggest lobbying groups today is people lobbying for money for uh, for Zelensky's regime. Um, so it's it's a crazy hodgepodge of things, and it doesn't function rationally as as you know a coherent human being would. <clears throat> so it is crazy, you know. You mentioned the the economics of this, and we we repeatedly hear uh, President Putin uh, criticize that somehow he's caused all of this inflation. Now, <laughs> monetary policy causes inflation. You print too much money, you get inflation. Cut and dry. You spend government spends too much money, you get inflation. But uh, it it is remarkable to say, well, well, Putin attacked Ukraine and caused inflation. He did not cause any inflation whatsoever. What has helped to, to accelerate inflation quite dramatically is that the US placed sanctions and there's this sort of uh, knee-jerk reaction to sanction this one, that one. Anybody that, anybody that you don't like for the moment, you place economic sanctions. And look, but look what it's done. Uh, we've tried to cut off all Russian exports and we've had some considerable success. But just listen to what we get. And I say we, but the, principally the Western world, the civilized world gets from, from Russia. They're the second biggest exporter of oil. They are the world's largest exporter of natural gas the second largest exporter of aluminum. Russia is the world's largest exporter of fertilizer, which will determine the amount of food that is available in the next year or two. World largest exporter of lumber, third largest exporter of coal, fifth largest of iron and steel. Anyway, the, the list goes on and on, but these are, products, resources, commodities that are essential to the foundation of civilization. If you cut them off, you cut off the largest exporter in the world, you will dislocate your economy like nothing you could possibly do. Um, so now here, here we've got the Ukraine, which is of little practical importance to the United States, not an ally, it's not part of NATO, uh, and yet we're risking World War III uh, and and an ex an acceleration of the economic collapse for absolutely nothing of consequence to America. And Sarah, if I could just add one quick footnote here. I, I don't think they, the people who are pushing this think that it will go to nuclear war. There's a certain arrogance 
in the unipolar mentality. You see it with Tony Blinken. You see it with Victoria Nuland, that we can do whatever we want, and we have been doing it, and nations will go along with us. They'll submit to this order. The difference is that Russia is a nuclear power. Russia is a nation with a, a long history and tradition and a culture, similarly with China. And we see that the German population is willing to submit. There's some resistance in France. Uh, the, the British population goes along with, with uh, whatever is coming out of uh, Whitehall and the city. But other countries aren't. And the arrogance that as a unipolar power <clears throat> has them deluded to believe that every nation will end up submitting. And I, that's the danger. A nuclear war could occur because of an accident. Because once you have two nuclear powers in a war, that's the threat. It seems that, and well, I think... It, you know, something... Go ahead, if you... Go ahead. Oh, I, I, I was just going to follow on that... Uh... Within within the last day or two, there's been some very dramatic uh, information that has been reported widely, but it, it doesn't get on TV, so people don't know it exists. But it uh, back a couple of weeks ago, the uh, the cruiser Moskva, which is the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet of Russia, was sunk by two advanced missiles provided by NATO uh, to the Ukrainian forces. And it came out uh, in the press, uh, I think it was NBC, it's, it's been widely reported by the mainstream media, that the U.S. provided the intelligence yeah. and gave the precise location and identity of that ship to the Ukrainians, which then allowed them to sink the ship there are rumors that it may have gone down with most of the most of the sailors aboard. Now, this is the U.S. orchestrating the sinking of the of the uh, flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, this is a monumental provocation. In addition, it came out the I think the day later that the U.S. has been providing the information that has allowed the targeting of Russian generals. There have been 12 Russian generals uh, killed in this sort of assassination plot where the U.S. gives the intelligence and sends the Ukrainian uh, forces off to assassinate the general. I don't think that uh, President Putin ever anticipated that he he sort of he attributed a certain rationality to the Americans that they would not do anything so extraordinarily reckless. Um, and I think it it's taken him aback. he He was obviously uh, emotionally hit by the sinking of the ship. And the problem is that, in the West, I, I believe that Harley is correct, that, uh, that NATO is banking on the Russians not using nuclear weapons. And it's odd because on the one hand, we're saying, well, 
Putin's a madman. We we always declare people madmen whenever whenever they're on the other side of us. They have to be mad. I've watched Putin since the day he was elected. I've followed him closely. This man is as cool and calculating. He's extraordinarily intelligent. Um, he is not somebody who is swept up by some emotional thing. We are banking on him being like uh, like Mr. Spock in Star Wars, the fellow who had no emotions but simply has this brilliant mind. The difference is that uh, Putin is not Mr. Spock. <clears throat> he does have emotions and uh, he is very patriotic and he will not oversee the dissolution and dismemberment of Russia, which I think is is NATO's ultimate goal. I think they see enormous wealth in Russia, and I think they intend to seize that wealth, and they they look at the fact that there can be just literally dozens and dozens of powerful politicians who can become trillionaires by taking over the, the lumber, the coal, all of these other resources. Mm -hmm. And I now I don't have proof that that's part of their thinking, but just knowing the thought process, they did they did it in in Syria, where they seized part of Syria, contrary to all international law. They took the part that grows all of their wheat and produces much of their oil, and basically just stole it. It was it was international larceny. Uh, I, I see no reason why they won't have a, a similar thought process when it comes to Russia. They already tried it in the 1990s with the shock therapy policy, where Western bankers came in and took over Russian companies and raw materials. You mentioned nickel and aluminum. And that's what brought Putin to power. In 1999, Putin actually reversed that process of looting Russia. And he's not going to let it happen as long as he has an opportunity to fight it. Right, right. He he is he is very patriotic, and and he he is not a fearful man. Uh, when the day he was he was elected, he swore he was sworn in, and he immediately flew to Chechnya, where there was an uprising of mm -hmm. of Islamic terrorism in this portion of Russia. He crushed that movement, and then he had himself parachuted to the central square in Grozny, and he alone, in jogging outfit, jogged around the city. This is a city that's still got snipers, and buildings are still smoking, but he wanted to show, we have done it, and we, we are back in control. Russia is united again. This is not a man who is is just sort of cold and and self-interested. He 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 what he does he does for Russia. And we better watch that we don't do something that does cause an emotional reaction that does cause him to react to an outcry of of the Russian people and uh we might be surprised. He is human. He is not Mr. Spock.
It seems that we have a bigger problem because let's talk about their resources. We we have an energy issue which and an inflation issue. And the energy and the inflation is all tied together. It's causing more inflation. We have a food issue, the fertilizer. The congressmen and people are really, and even now we have CEOs of major food companies talking about how we're going to have a major supply issue in the United States. We have other countries who are already on the verge of starvation. They are going in, they are starving. We could see hundreds of millions of people starve because of this situation. We could have um, other countries be pushed to be very emotional as their people um, fight just to survive. So pushing to World War III um, is something that is happening because we fail to see the consequences of our actions because it might not just be Putin's emotional reaction, it could be the world's emotional reaction to the consequences of not having energy and food. What do you see as um, a trigger point to, to turning into a hot war versus where we're at right now? We have a hot war between Ukraine and Russia in a limited sense, but do you see uh, China and other countries, India, stepping up and joining in this war because of those other factors? I'm not sure that I see other nations coming in on the side of, of Russia. I think that it is essentially a war between Russia and Ukraine, but the war is run by NATO. Uh, the, the Turkish media has disclosed that there are 50 uh, senior French officers who are trapped in the steel plant in Mariupol. Uh, which is surrounded now by Russian troops, and, and virtually all of the, the city is taken over except this one plant. But, uh, but they disclose that there are 50 French officers there who obviously are guiding the, the war effort. A day later, the United Kingdom uh, announced mm -hmm. that there, there were 20 uh, UK citizens who were also in the uh, steel plant at Mariupol. Um, we everywhere, NATO is everywhere in this war, except that they aren't publicly announcing it. Uh, and, and now they don't have the combatant forces, they don't have the infantry, the artillery, the armor, but they they provide, I think, most of the guidance and most, uh, direction for the Ukrainian army. At one point early on, Within a couple of weeks, two, three weeks after the war started, Zelensky was actually talking about possibly making peace with Russia. Mm -hmm. And he had indicated that one of the ideas that that uh, we had we had floated ourselves was to demilitarize Russia to ensure that it would never be a part of NATO and that it would never host foreign troops. And he was kind of open to that. The U.S. squelched it. We didn't want peace. We want them to fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood for the glory of NATO and the one world order. We don't, we don't, we really do not care about the welfare of people. But what is the point we of that? To destroy we really Russia? We don't care about the welfare of people. 
It's to destroy Russia and this new monetary system, but in the point, in the process of destroying Russia in this new monetary system, we're going to destroy ourselves and the West at the same time. Is that the goal, to just kind of destroy everybody and then rebuild up with their power? Anybody can answer that one, if you want. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard, I'm just trying to get to the, I mean, what is going on here? You, you provoked an interesting point here. Uh, look at what was done with Ger Nazi Germany in World War II. The British played a leading role in bringing Hitler to power with the intent that Hitler and the Soviets would fight a war and destroy each other. Because the goal of the British Empire was to prevent any potential for an integrated economic unity between Western Europe and Eurasia. That's Mackinder's geopolitics. That's 101 of, of the uh, United Kingdom or the British Empire's strategy to remain an empire. Now, they miscalculated. Hitler turned west. You know, and, and this is not the first time that there's been a miscalculation by these brilliant stra strategists who believe that they are better than everyone else. And, you know, there's a, a racial element in this in terms of the, the British Empire. So, you know, I, I think you, you see this again, this idea that the Russians are inferior, they're not going to be able to succeed, we can beat them, we can back them down. And it's not so much that the... the that money will be made from this, it's that all opposition will be crushed. And once that's done, they can organize whatever kind of order they want. That's how they think about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think they fully agreed yet on what the order will be, because there are some people who still realize, some, some of these elites realize that you do need production. Uh, you can't starve the whole world. So, you know, I think the, the advantage we have is that much of the world is rejecting this idea of a great reset and a global non-sovereign order in which over and above the top you have a global government. Most of the world rejects that. We've got to figure out a way to bring people together. And I think one of the important things that, that Colonel Black is doing by presenting this picture from the strategic side is opening the door for other people, veterans, military people, to come out and, and show the insanity of this policy. Just in the last couple of days, Colonel Danny Davis, who was a whistleblower on Afghanistan, has come out critical of, of US policy. A Lawrence Wilkerson, very well known from having worked with Colin Powell and then later rejected the whole Iraq war, Wilkerson said the US is on an insane course that could lead to nuclear war. So Colonel Black and, and others, uh, Douglas McGregor is another one. We need more military people to come out and say something. And I, I would like to ask you, Colonel, if, if you have any idea, uh, are there more veterans of, of that quality and caliber who you expect will come out and say something? Yeah, I suspect there are, but it's important to remember that uh, beginning with President Clinton and then following with uh, Barack Obama, now with uh, Biden, <clears throat> there's been a purging that has taken place of the 
of the general officer ranks. And the, the quality of, of the general officer ranks in Department of Defense is extraordinarily low. Um, mm. Intellectually low, morally low, professionally low. And, um, but I, I, think, uh, I think there's some very fine retired people, Doug McGregor, you know, the, all of the people you mentioned are very, very fine people. But I do think that um, it, is, uh, it is important that the, the American people become mobilized and begin to have a voice. And Sarah, I know that you, uh, you, you always uh, call on people to, you know, to take action in some way. And uh, uh, with your permission, I'll just, you know, give a few ideas that I have. And I also wanted to ask you, because people are I, buying, I, before you go into the ideas, uh, add in there, because people are panic buying uh, iodide pills for, because they're worried about a nuclear war. Could you talk about whether that is something they should do as well and other things they could do? Yes. Um, potassium iodide is a, it is a salt that you, you take by mouth. And uh, what it does, it, it goes into your thyroid gland. Your thyroid gland uses iodine and with these potassium iodide pills, it, it loads up your thyroid to where it can't absorb any more iodine. When the nuclear bombs go off, there is enormous radioactive fallout. And this comes, comes down in the air for some days afterwards. Um, it has a relatively short half-life, but a lot, there, it, it is filled with a lot of iodine. And if you, if you ingest it, if it gets into your body and it gets into your thyroid gland, then it kills you. Um, you can partially offset this by taking these potassium iodide pills. Now, they have to be taken strictly according to CDC guidelines, which are non-political in this case and very good. Uh, and, and basically, you just, you just take a couple of these pills and it does load up your thyroid. You have to be careful not to overdo it because it can hurt your thyroid. Um, but I think really at this point, the government should be issuing thyroid uh, potassium iodide pills to the public, just like they gave out uh, COVID shots, uh, because it's much more important to save lives uh, in this way, because we're talking about a vast loss of life from, from a nuclear war. We're talking about potentially losing a third of the population. Uh, and um, so people can order potassium iodide pills, but it's been in the news over the last month or so that there's a run on potassium iodide pills. There's a backlog. I've tried to buy them and uh, they were backlogged. We've got them on backlog order. Uh, but it's worth worth trying to find and, and get access to them. Just don't start pill popping with those or you hurt yourself. You use them when there's a nuclear war and you use them just judiciously. It just takes a couple pills. But um, anyway, yes, people should be should be getting the potassium iodide to prepare for the war because we may not be able to head it off. Um, and 
One of the things I have started doing, I subscribe to the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to the Wall Street Journal, and occasionally I'll post a comment. And um, I find that most of the people making comments are relatively uninformed about what they're talking about. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so you come from a position of strength if you know a few facts. And I would encourage anybody who, who has subscriptions to any any outlet to simply make the point, we're walking towards World War III, we need to back off. Um, and uh, so, so write comments to the news outlets. People should send this video around so that people can, can watch and say, oh my gosh, I, I never knew this. I didn't realize we're on the verge of World War III. Um, call your congressman. You've got, you've got two senators who represent you and one, one representative. Call them. You can call them at night. If you're a little bit shy about it, just call and leave a message on the phone and say, you know, this is Jane Smith. I'm against the war in Ukraine. I'm against all these sanctions. I'm against us being involved at all. And uh, the congressmen, they get the picture after a while. They say, well, you know, we've got a few people who are who are not too keen on this. And they, they tend to, to be a little more reticent themselves. Um, but... Anyway, those are a few of the things that I can think of to do, but you, we just need to get the word out, and I appreciate what you're doing to do that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Carly, do you have anything that you want to say in last comments? Well, you have to organize as though your life depends on it, because it does. And the idea of the American Republic was that citizens will ultimately be the ones to make the decisions. That's what sovereignty is about. That's what our freedom is for. That we as free sovereign citizens can act so that our government will act for the general benefit of the nation. And we have to have a national mission. I mean, when you get into identity politics and geopolitics, everything's divided into the smallest uh, competing entities. And that's how lobbying works. That's how the, the war party works. They get people fighting over who controls a local garbage can while they're stealing your, your uh, accounts at the bank and putting the country into a war. What, what Colonel Black said about speaking out, people have become pessimistic and don't believe the media, don't believe in politicians, and they think there's nothing we can do. That's wrong. We've been able to stop wars in the past. I, I think the election in 2016 of Donald Trump was an explicit rejection of Hillary Clinton intending to get the United States into the war in Syria. I think you probably agree with that. Yes, yes. that was a, and, definitely an element. And it was because people were speaking out against it. So don't be shy and don't be intimidated by the mainstream media. You know, look what just happened with CNN. They had a multi-million dollar project that collapsed because no one wanted to see their lies. Get knowledgeable and go out and, and fight for the truth. And, you know, I, I think as one thing you should realize is the world is moving in a different direction than the transatlantic elites. And the American people don't go along with the transatlantic elites. I think that's why Trump was elected. I think we have to have a clear voice 
and uh, the idea of a world of sovereign nation states working together for economic development as opposed to fighting to loot each other for the benefit of a handful of very wealthy people. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope people share this far and wide and please continue doing what you're doing and uniting all people towards peace, negotiation, and sovereign countries for the betterment of everyone. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, Senator. And Sarah, it's always good to be with you. With the global economy being in shambles and central bankers moving towards a reset, it's never been a better time to protect your wealth by owning precious metals. Just contact Andy at milesfranklin.com. Tell him Sarah sent you. He promised me he will guarantee you the lowest price anywhere in the country. Remember, email Andy at milesfranklin.com and tell him Sarah sent you. It's never been a better time to protect your future than now.